Hi, and welcome to Voices of Esalen. I'm Sam Stern. Today my guest is beloved Gestalt practitioner Dorothy Charles. Dorothy has been a part of Esalen since the early 1980s when she was a student of Esalen co-founder Dick Price. For many years, she taught at the Gazebo Preschool on Esalen property and in time became one of the best known and best respected teachers of Esalen body-centered Gestalt. Together, Dorothy and I spoke about many subjects including community, presence, therapy, and how the death of one of Esalen's founders deeply affected its community. Dorothy has touched so many lives here in Big Sur and on the Central Coast, and it was a real joy to speak with her. Here's my conversation with Dorothy Charles. So I was talking with uh, my manager in the maintenance department, Bruce Christensen, who is a great fan of the work that you do. And I was asking him in preparation for this interview, what would you say to Dorothy? What kind of questions would you pose? And Bruce said to me, well, I would just get really basic. And I would start by asking, what brought you to Esalen? What began your journey here? So that's, that is where I'll start. I came here in my late 20s in 1982. I had been recently divorced and had gone back to college and was thinking that I wanted to work with kids, be a teacher. And I had been volunteering in some classrooms uh, and it wasn't really grabbing me. It wasn't having the experience I had hoped for. So on my um, winter break, I signed up for the Work Scholar program and came here, I thought, for a month. Uh, and during that time I met Dick Price and saw the work that he was doing here in the community and had the experience of, oh, I found something that really interests me and that I'd like to learn and, and I'd like to live here in this community. I fell in love with Big Sur and I really liked what was happening here. So I, I quit school and you know moved here and stayed here for many, many years after that. What was Esalen like in the 1980s? Well, uh, Dick and his wife Chris and his, their daughter Jenny lived in the in the little house, so they were on site. One of the founders was actually living here in the community, and there were several um, families with young children. So that would be one of the the ways. Uh, there were some horses and a pony and lots of dogs and cats. That's another difference. And so it really was more felt more like a village to me when I arrived here. And one of the things that really stood out for me was I was walking by the waterfall house and there was a gathering of several, maybe 50 people. And um, there was, people were drumming and dancing and eating and talking. And I asked somebody what it was and they said, well, I guess we would call it a baby shower, but they're calling it a blessing way that uh, Tom and Shar, who was pregnant at that time were expecting a baby. And so the whole community of you know people who lived here had gathered to to welcome the baby and have you know have a a kind of a ritual that I I hadn't seen before I hadn't been exposed to before. Mm -hmm. When I think about the 1980s in terms of uh, popular culture myth and whatnot, it's often contextualized in sort of like a Reagan era with the uh, the excesses on Wall Street and uh, of course Esalen is sort of a the bearer of the legacy of the 60s. And so I'm imagining that Esalen in the, in the 1980s was this way to... Yeah, how to counteract that. I mean, I came here from Palo Alto and I was working at one of the earliest Pete's Coffee uh, shops in the Bay Area and people were coming, Silicon Valley was just starting, Steve Jobs would come in and with his cronies and they would talk about what they were working on and the amount of wealth and um, 
yeah, just what you're describing about the 80s, I found really uh, off-putting. And so coming here, it felt like, oh, there's something else happening during this era that that I'm interested in and would like to know more about and and live if I can. So how were you exposed to Dick's, Dick Price's Gestalt teachings? Well, he, as I said, he lived here on the property. And so two or three times a week, he would offer a community open seat in the afternoon. And so one of those days after working in the kitchen, which was my work scholar job, uh, I walked into an open seat that he was doing and was completely captivated by what the way he was being with the person who was sitting next to him. I knew about therapy. I'd been in some therapy. I'd been in a, a therapy group. But the way he was attending to the person he was working with was something that was really new for me. I hadn't experienced that before. How would you describe it? Is it a, a presence thing or the, the words that he spoke, his body? Um, well, presence is really hard to put into words because it's, it's an energetic um, experience. So if I'm present with you, you feel that and you know that. And if I'm not, if I'm distracted, you also feel and know that. So I'd say it was a combination of the level of um, presence that he brought, but also um, the feeling of acceptance. Like whatever the person said or did, he was okay with, curious about, uh, and didn't have an agenda for where the session was supposed to go or what they were supposed to say or do or how they were supposed to be in particular. Would you tell me about Dick as a person? I feel like I know Michael quite well. I've spoken with him and the way I would characterize Michael is he's a cerebral, kind of far-reaching yogi of a, a huge brain. And I just feel like I don't know the other co-founder of Esalen's um, character very well. Well, my version of him, right? I mean, I, I love that he used to call this Inkblot Institute and that we all project our, <laughs> you know, ourselves and our ways of seeing the, and experiencing the world onto the place. And so my version of him or my take on him, well, when I first saw him around the property, I didn't know who he was and I thought he worked on the grounds department because he was very often working on a stone wall or build, you know, clearing uh, bushes or brush or something. So, um, and then I, I met him through the open seat work in a different way. He was a very physical person, um, also very bright. And he had been hospitalized against his will when he'd had a manic episode as a young man. Um, he was misdiagnosed. Um, I think they thought he had schizophrenia. And so he, his family um, had him committed to this place on the East Coast in Connecticut called the Institute for living or of living, something like that. And he received um, lots of electric shock treatment and insulin shock treatment, which he said was even more debilitating than the electric shock. His take was that he was being brutalized for being ill or for needing help and that he was in a process in his mania that was unfolding. And if he had had just a safe place and support to be with that process, he could have gotten through it and integrated it. But instead, it was interrupted in, in very um, challenging and painful ways. He created Esalen in a way, I think you know a lot of his um, motivation was one, to change the, the, how psychiatry was done in this country during that time. He missed 
being at that institution uh, where they still, they did lobotomies on people. And he would have been a, a prime candidate because he was young and strong and, you know, resisting, if you want to use that word. And, you know, you and I would not be sitting in this room right now having this conversation probably because this place wouldn't exist the way that I have known it without him. He really thought that being in touch with nature and eating good healthy food and being able to have exercise and body work and being with other like-minded people who are interested in healing and the psyche and psychological functioning was was a way to heal himself and and to heal others. And for me, one of the things I appreciated about him the most was that he had suffered a lot and he wasn't bitter. He took his suffering and tried to use what he had learned about what had happened to him in service uh, of helping other people. So one of the ways Eslin was different back then was uh, next door, Stan and Christina Groff had something called the Spiritual Emergence emergency network and so people who were in extraordinary states had a possibility of going there instead of going into into a hospital yes yeah um what else could i say about him just very warm loving funny active loved to hike you know he'd take his dog and go hiking up in the mountains he knew people here in big sur that weren't connected to eslin because of you know the way he explored the the land here yeah yeah does that give you yeah that, that does give me a picture and he enjoyed being part of the community yeah he would t- he'd be at the baths he'd get body work I mean there are times when I'm sure he wanted to withdraw and not be a part of the community because this place can in my experience can be quite intense but yes he lived his life here and he used practices that he found helped him and and know helped helped him heal and it wasn't like I'm creating this for you um it was it was more like I'm doing these things and you you guys can join me if you find them of interest or helpful to you I was really struck by the fact that I could walk into a community open seat and the kitchen manager was in there doing personal work and in all the businesses or institutions I had been part of before people were really expected to stay in their roles. Things were vertically, there was a hierarchy to, to, uh, to organize things. And I was really fascinated and excited by the fact that um, we could all live here together, be in different roles at different times. And part of the practice was to be mindful of, okay, what role am I in right now when I'm relating to you? And so the possibility for more wholeness and, no, and more intimacy in a work living situation was, was made possible. And it didn't always work well and it could get really messy. And I think that the attempt was really heroic and I, I feel like I was a part of something that was so special back, back then and so grateful that I had a chance to, to live that way and be here then. To explore the history of Gestalt, the, the lineage that Dick passed on to you, I kind of want to bring up the name Fritz Perls now, now, Dick, when he co-founded Esalen, had not heard of the term Gestalt. Is is that right? That's correct. Yeah. And so Fritz coming here, Fritz Perls coming here, was the was kind of the genesis of Gestalt and Esalen being aligned. Yes. 
So Fritz, yeah, Fritz came here and taught workshops and Dick um, didn't really get on with him so well. Oh. Uh, he was, yeah, quite a curmudgeon um, and difficult. And he was elderly. He had congestive heart failure. You know, he didn't feel well. I think that was that was part of it. Um, but then Dick uh, dropped in on some of his workshops and really liked the, what he saw, liked, liked what Fritz was doing, working with people. And so he, he started studying with him. What was Fritz's version of Gestalt, if, if there's a way to to break it down or, or talk about certain characteristics of it? Well, he was he was brilliant because he worked with uh, the obvious, what was happening in the present moment with the person, their the voice, their posture, their unconscious movements. And at that time, psychoanalysis was, you know, the most well-known way of working with people. So there are lots of interpretation, right? And working with the unconscious. And he was working with what was right there in front of him, you know. Um, he was, however, though, very much in the doctor and patient model, where he was the expert and the person, you know, was, uh, he was working with them from that perspective. And so he'd do these demonstration uh, uh, sessions in the lodge. And, and that was also very exciting. I wasn't, I didn't come until 82 and he, he died in 71. So this was, you know, the late 60s. But um, to work with people in a group setting was, you know, that was, uh, that was a new way of, of doing this kind of work. Yeah. So. And did you watch tapes of him? I watched, yeah, lots of, lots of tapes. And the thing I would say about Fritz is that he, it, it wasn't intersubjective. And by that I mean he did not consider who, how who he was, the way he was relating he didn't ever take into account or bring into the work how that might be influencing what was happening in the session, right? Whereas Dick, um, because of his, um, the bad experiences he'd had about being so intruded on, wanted to change uh, his, he did his version. And Fritz would say, I don't want a lot of little Fritzes. I want you to, you know, make your own wine out of this work and, and put it in your own bottle. Um, and so Dick made, he, it, he didn't call it the hot seat. He changed the name to the open seat. And um, the idea was that there would be the possibility to just sit and explore in, in open, open awareness with his help and support. But anything he said was an invitation. And his style was to be very, um, he was a minimalist in a way, I would say. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. So, so I see the evolution as Fritz, where it was more um, a doctor-patient model, to Dick, uh, something that was more like a guide. You know, he called it uh, the person uh, who would be in the what we would think of as the therapist role, the reflector role, mm -hmm. and the person working on the seat was the initiator, and the initiator was responsible for the session, right? Yeah. And then as the work continued to evolve, um, Eric. Erickson and I started to study intersubjectivity uh, systems theory, and there's a woman down in LA, Lynn Jacobs, and she was a Gestalt therapist and uh, an analyst. And so we started reading her work and and her the work of her teachers and incorporating some of that into the Gestalt work that that we were doing here at that time. What was it like when you came in terms of the the general com community's feel about Gestalt? Was it something that everyone is really into or are there some people who are saying you know i i can't stand that we are sitting in groups and there were 
different factions and some of us were really enthused about it and into it and um, like I love going to my departmental process group that happened once a week when I worked in the kitchen um, and then there were people who didn't want to know and you know didn't participate and but I would say that the bulk of people here um, were interested in personal growth or, or becoming more self-reflective and um, I'd say that people were probably even hired into departments because that was part of their interest in being here, that they wanted to be here, but they also wanted to, to know themselves and, and to work on themselves. Yeah. Yeah. So I worked in the kitchen first and uh, did a lot of groups with Chris and Dick and a lot of individual work with Dick. And then uh, in 1985, I moved uh, departments and I started working at the gazebo school and I thought well I'm interested in working with kids and now I have this love of gestalt and you know how perfect I'm gonna go work there and be able to marry these two things and then and then take take that out from here um, what was the gazebo school it was a school here on the property um, and it uh, was founded by Janet Letterman she was a student of Fritz's she was a school teacher down in LA and she'd come up here and take workshops with him and then she'd go back to her classroom and incorporate what she was learning in these groups. Um, so at some point she decided she wanted to live here full time and she came up and right about that time uh, there were kids being born on the property and so there were I don't know, three or four kids and so they that was an old dump site and so together with the teachers they started clearing the site, the kids, and and created that that school park, it was called, because out being outdoors was a really important part of the curriculum, yeah, to be in a safe yet open enough space for exploration and some risk-taking was, was a big part of the philosophy. And then in terms of the Gestalt work, you know, we would make I statements and talking to them, we would encourage them um, in the way that they could to communicate directly and clearly with each other to uh, work out their own conflicts with our help and support. So I felt like I was either doing open seat with an individual or group process all day long. And then we were encouraged to bring what we were interested in so that they could be around grownups who were, you know, uh, had passions, had interests, had projects that they were doing. So I was, I really liked the garden and, and the animals. So we had goats and and a pony and a dog and uh, and lots of veggie gardens and we'd make lunch together every day. Um, many of the parents, uh, you know, worked here at Eslin. So say somebody's mom was the baker, that we'd go over to the lodge and and help bake the bread. Or somebody's dad was a, was the, one of the farmers, so we'd go out to the farm and harvest onions. So we were really um, incorporated into the community uh, in a really strong way, which made it way more interesting and fun for them and for us as well. Yeah. How old were the children? Uh, we would start taking them from a year up to uh, five or six. Mm -hmm. Some of them would do an extra year at gazebo and then go into first grade instead of going uh, to kindergarten at, at Captain Cooper or down at Pacific Valley. Yeah. And what was the, um, I don't know if you can even answer this, but like what was it like for the children, the gestalt orientation? What What could you see that might be different for their experience as opposed to a, a regular preschool? Uh-huh. Well, we got to see that and be able to compare and contrast a lot because uh, we offered childcare for seminarians. 
So we would have a few out, kids from the outside coming in, um, you know, often during a week. I would say that they had a lot of confidence and a freedom of expression and a strength and robustness and vitality in their bodies because they were outside and climbing trees and playing in the mud and water and uh, had a lot of that physical free freedom. Um, they didn't look to us for permission. The kids from the outside, I heard a lot of teacher can I, or wanting, they'd wanna do something and then they'd look back over their shoulder to see is this okay? And the kids who, who grew up in the gazebo, one of the, one of the pieces of the philosophy that was so important was that we don't interrupt them when they're in their flow, except for um, things that are, have to do with health and safety or there was some structure, so enough structure. So in the morning we came in and we fed the animals and then we washed hands and sang songs for lunchtime and then it was cleanup time. So they had that structure to be in, but the rest of the time they got to follow their own interest. And as long as they would clean up the blocks if they were done playing with them, they could just leave and go do the next thing. So if you look at the gestalt cycle of experience, there's this need that arises and then the organism moves toward fulfilling that need. And uh, I knew from my own upbringing and the way the things I had worked on on the open seat that there were lots of ways I interrupted myself with voices that weren't really coming from me. And so I'd say the lack of that in their environment really gave them a lot of self-trust and um, the ability to be spontane spontaneous and really alive, yeah, yeah. And they looked to us for help and support when they needed us, but the rest of the time, they were in their own interest, if you will, yeah, yeah. And so your evolution as the, uh, what do you call it, gestalt facilitator? Yeah, 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 that's good, that worked. <laughs> you don't like, me? do you like being called a therapist? I don't really, think that that's accurate for what I do. I think therapy's great, but that's I think I I think I do something different than that. Yeah. Yeah. Because what I'm teaching is an awareness practice and that's it's like learning to play uh, a musical instrument or practice a sport. It's a lifelong thing that I I'm studying and 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 working with. Yeah. yeah. All the time. Yeah. yeah. Well, cool. Well, tell me about how that sort of developed. Were there any watershed moments in the beginning? I did Dick and Chris were doing lots of month-long uh, workshops and, and um, study groups. He didn't like the word training. He said training is what you do with dogs. Um, so they were, they were study groups. And I, I went to a lot of those. And um, at one point he said to me, um, the Ojai Foundation is looking for a process person and to, work, you know, to live there and work with their people. And I, I thought of you. And so I, I took that as, you know, the stamp of approval, if you will, or a great compliment that he, he would consider recommending me for that. I didn't want to go. I still want, I wanted to stay here. Um, but that was, if, you th if I thought of a watershed moment, I had thought I really liked doing this. It seems like I, you know, there's some ease in it for me. Um, but then having that comment from him really, really helped me have more confidence in, in my ability or... Yeah. Um, so I'd work at Gazebo, and then I started getting hired for uh, process group facilitation for the work departments here. 
And then as part of those study groups, we would do um, community open seat, not for seminarians, but just for community members. And we there would be two of us at a time. So that's how we started practicing. And then as we developed more capacity, we started being able to get on the on the uh, community schedule for open seat. Now the departmental processes for people who don't know, well, they would be quite a bit smaller than the community open seat, is that right? Well, it would be just for the people in that department and the manager and everyone would participate and it would be a place to check in and see how people were doing and to air any conflicts that were happening and just to get to know each other more as, you know, in that human to human place instead of just in the work role. And how long would they be? Two hours, yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. Would they follow the, the format of, of people sort of like going around in a circle, checking in for 10 minutes, or would they, would it be sort of like, I have a big issue, and it's with, you know, person across there, and we got to fight it out. We want you to help us. Um, I think it, you know, it was partly up to the facilitator and what their interest in was in and how they wanted to shape the group. I really saw my role as um, teaching something about awareness practice and how to be more self-reflective, teaching uh, Gestalt communication skills and tools for direct communication, uh, the language of responsibility, you know, that I'm, I can choose to respond to what's happening instead of uh, react to what's happening. So um, how to work with the signal value of emotion so people could understand why they were so, you know, pissed off with this other person. Did you say uh, signal value? Yeah. What, could you explain that a little bit? Well, that that our feelings, our emotions are signals in, from our, in our organism that something important is going on that would be helpful for, for us to pay attention to. So when I'm experiencing sadness, for example, that's a signal that I'm experiencing a loss or remembering a loss. And if I'm angry, that might be a signal that I have a need that isn't being met or that my boundary's been crossed. Like that. Yeah, that makes sense. So I saw my role in supporting the departments was to help people have more skill in relating to themselves and each other. You, you, you spoke about Gestalt communication, and I, I think it would be a little bit interesting to, um, to just explore that a, a bit. Okay. What well, it sounds like. What it sounds like. Uh, well, again, it's the language of responsibility, and so uh, the most well-known probably an important part of that is to make I statements and when I make an I statement I am owning this is my experience and when I own my own experience and don't assume you're having the same experience as I'm having then I'm uh, respecting your boundary and I'm tolerating difference and being curious about what that difference might be so I statements uh, using personal pronouns like for sitting in the circle uh, I would say you to the people sitting there instead of people or everyone, you know. Uh, the language, the point of Gestalt language is to enhance contact. So um, sometimes in the early days when I was here, uh, we could use Gestalt language as something to criticize each other with. Like, oh, that wasn't a nice statement, and so I can just dismiss whatever you just said. And that's that's not what the intention of that language is. It's for being able to facilitate contact. Um, another, another piece of the language I really like is both things are both and instead of either or. 
I came out of a pretty rigid, black and white, rule-bound background. Mm -hmm. And so to see that there were shades of gray and I could feel one way and feel another way, that I'm a complex being uh, with different parts, that was really helpful for me. So we're in, where are we? We're in the mid-80s and Dick Price passes away. I wonder if you could kind of just speak about what what that was like for the community then and for you. Well, it was devastating, yeah. He um, was up in the canyon checking the water line in July of that year, 1985. There was a big fire, the Rat Creek Fire, that burned uh, the east side of the highway and you know, came, came very close to Esalen, um, right across right across the, the highway. And so as a result of that fire, the canyon was really destabilized that winter. And, and when it would rain, trees and uh, logs and rocks and would come down and break the water line. And so he would hike up there to keep an eye on it or to repair things. Um, and so he, that day, the day of his death, he had a, a meeting with Steve Donovan, who was then the general manager, uh, in the lodge at 10 a.m. And he didn't make that meeting, but, you know, he'd often kind of take off in the hills and go hiking, so I think uh, people weren't worried. And then at dinner time, I was in the lodge, and Chris was there, and she he still hadn't come home, and it was, it was after dark. So at that point, um, Steve Beck, Brian Like, a few of the other guys who lived here uh, full-time, Steve Waldrop went up into the canyon. I think first Brian and Steve, Steve went up and they found his body. And so then they came home back to, to the little house and told Chris that, that he was dead and that they'd found his body. And so then that's when a small group of guys took a stretcher and went up into the canyon. Um, I got a knock on my door. Janet came and knocked on my door. I think it was around one or two a.m. Could I go be with some of the kids who I knew from Gazebo, so their moms could go be with Chris, uh, so that, to help you know wash his body and to support her. Um, so I did that, and um, then around six a.m. I got a call that um, Chris was inviting people to come and to say goodbye and to to be with him. So um, the whole community came, and it was yeah just. People were in shock and sad and grieving, and it was, yeah, it was... One of my strong memories is standing, and he was lay, laying on the bed in the bedroom, and there were flowers, and there was music playing, and, and uh, he had this beautiful, Chris had covered him with this beautiful alpaca blanket, and um, the room was just filled, the whole house was filled with people, and just standing in silence and feeling together. Um, and it was, it was really beautiful and poignant and, and also just one of the saddest moments of my life, yeah. What happened with Gestalt after Dick passed? Yeah, there were still people here teaching. People would still come from the outside to teach uh, five-day workshops. Robert Hall was someone, uh, Julian Silverman, Seymour Carter was around, and he had been, you know, uh, had worked with Dick and had been around here for a long time. Um, 
And then Eric Erickson, who had been studying with Dick uh, along with me, we were from that era of students, uh, started uh, teaching more, doing open seat, and you know, carrying carrying his his version of the work on here. Mm-hmm. Was his version of the work stylistically different in certain ways? Well, I guess there was a more relational aspect to it, like I was saying, you know, and so the tools were the same but paying more attention to what was happening in in the relating between the the facilitator and the person working i'd say that that had more weight or more um, a little more focus how does that how does that get br- brought to light like in the course of a session okay well let's say i'm working with you and you're talking about something and feeling and then I say something, I ask you a question, say something to you, and all of a sudden it's clear to me that you've interrupted something, you've stopped, something has changed uh, dramatically enough for, for both of us to be aware of it. I might say something to you like, what just happened? Or you know, did I just say something or do something that is, um, Having you know the, the having impact on you, and being sincerely curious about that, uh-huh. yeah. So a focus on what is happening between you and me, yeah, as opposed to just the content of what I'm saying. Yeah, or as opposed to somebody saying working with Dick, I you know something about Dick, and he'd say, okay, put me on the pillow and tell me, you know, and and use the pillow work instead of the dialogue. Not always, but often he would do that. What happens when he goes to the pillow, the, the hot seat? or it, To put Dick on the pillow? Yeah. Then he would just sit there and observe the, the dialogue. And then he'd, you know, I think for the most important part for him would be that, that I would take his seat mm-hmm. and, you know, That's see things from his perspective, do like, my best to see, some, see it from his perspective. As, yeah. as the facilitator, kind of. So in a way, are we kind of talking about a power differential, or? Um, well, I th- you know, my experience of him was that he really wanted to empower the people he was working with to help them see that the answers, the answers were inside me, and you know, not to look to him, not to look to the authority figure, but to trust my own direct experience. You know, he. He told Chris, well, when I die, um, you could stuff me and put me in the lodge and I'll have a string and you can pull it and I'll say three things. What are you, what are you doing now? How are you doing that? Yeah. And how should I know? <laughs> and do those principles guide your work? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That I'm not, I don't have a privileged view of reality, that I don't have the answers, that I'm there to support the person I'm working with to coming to what is is true for them. Yeah. Yeah. And and to trust that our organisms are always unfolding toward health and healing and and that we have a lot of innate wisdom in our bodies and the answers are, you know, are are inside of us if we can get out of the way. That's a, that's something else he said. Trust process, allow process, get out of the way. So how long did you what was what was kind of your evolution with staying with Gazebo and becoming a, a facilitator? How long did you stay with the school? 
Yeah, I started in 85 and I stopped working there in 2000. Um, I led my first work scholar month in 1999 and it went well and I really enjoyed doing it. And so, um, yeah, around 2000, or in 99, I, I started feeling like gazebo wasn't a challenge for me anymore. I'd really learned a lot and um, I wanted to, to step into something new and work more with, with adults. And so I, I stopped working at the school and started doing more work here in the community. Yeah, and so what was that like when you started becoming the person who was the, the facilitator and that was your, your major role? Well, I got a lot of practice at that experiment. I told you I appreciated so much about what role am I in right now and how do I relate to people? Uh, I got to pay attention to that. I really loved being a part of uh, this place, the part that invites people to come here and open up to what their experience has been and to create a safe place to, to turn towards maybe what they haven't been able to turn towards before. And so, um, yeah, it was intense and arduous at times. Uh, and it felt like a privilege too. Yeah. I've kind of often thought about what you what you do in terms of just the the sheer number of people who you work with and and affect and I think for some it would be draining energetically um, I'm assuming it's not as much for you and just I was kind of hoping you would speak about how to uh, how to keep yourself grounded or how to keep the experience for you as a as an energetically positive one well, you know, it always feels vulnerable to say this because people can take this so many different ways, but I really feel like the work that I do is my spiritual practice and that the, the best parts of me come forward when I'm working and I want to be more present. And so when I'm working, that's, that's my number one task. So, so there's that. And um, in order to replenish my energy, uh, time in nature, hiking, my animals, time with friends, creative pursuits, all of those things um, help keep me grounded. I think that's the word you use. Yeah. 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 And give me energy to do, to do the work. What are some of your self-care practices that have nothing to do with Gestalt? Um, I'm an off an on-again yoga person. I love it when I'm doing it you know, regularly and it's very easy for me to fall out of that practice. Um, I love to knit and work with fiber and fabric. Um, I love to go to the movies and get lost in a great narrative that somebody else has created. I like to go to art museums and look at art. Travel is really nourishing and exciting. Um, you know, that place of enough uh, routine and then getting in enough novelty to keep things fresh. And that's one of the, the really great things about the work I do when I, I get to travel. I've gone to Japan and China and Spain and and worked in other cultures and, and I really enjoy that part of it. You mentioned earlier when you started to, to become a facilitator at Esalen that there was a, there was a kind of an ease with it and I think for some people, the intimacy that, that comes with relating in this way would be unbearable. 
What do you think it is about you that is drawn towards the intimacy of working with people in, in this way? I think that I came here longing for something that I didn't even know how to name, and that was to be with people who were present and who saw me and heard me. And having received that from, from Dick and, and from Chris as well, um, and seeing the difference it made in my life, it, it made me want to show up and, and pass that along or offer that to other people. And I don't, I don't know why it's more challenging for other people and, and not for me. Some maybe just my basic temperament and nature but also that my early experience here was really, really powerful. Mm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That you got something. It changed you in some way. Yeah. And it was about that willingness to turn toward or to be with or you know, to be present. Yeah. When you look at your Gestalt facilitation today, compared to the way that you kind of started to do it in 1982, 83, yeah. could you characterize any, any shifts that you have made or what characterizes your work today? Well, more trust, you know, and I would uh, say things that I, I'd heard Dick say, you know, I borrowed from him, like we all do when we're learning something. And then the more comfortable I got and the more sessions I'd done, I could, I could do me more and less him. And I think the thing I would say about my work now is I've done so many sessions for so long, it's almost 40 years now, that... Um, I sit in the seat of, of real trust and that I think that makes a huge difference, you know? Yeah. Would you speak a little bit about Tribal Ground? Sure, yeah. Tribal Ground Circle is um, a, a consortium, if you will, of, of teachers who come through Dick's lineage of Gestalt. Uh, Chris Price and I dreamt for years of having a place that we could devote specifically to uh, the work that we learned from Dick and, you know, have continued to do. Um, and so I was traveling in Japan and I got a real estate flyer about a piece of property in Aptos that had some houses on it and a, a yurt, 32-foot yurt and teaching facility. And um, I sent her an email and said, well, you know, I know we have to start small, but you know, maybe we can dream big. And over the years, different people who um, appreciated the work had said to us, if you ever want to do something, you know, start something, we would like to help you. And so then um, we put out an email, Chris sent out an email, and um, the next morning there was an answer, yes, from... Uh, Maria uh, and Paul, these friends of ours, uh, who had worked with Chris and really appreciated the work, and they they bought this property, and so now we both live there and and, and teach there, and we also have an office in in Santa Cruz in town as okay. well. Yeah. Oh, cool. So, what kind of offerings go on at at Tribal Ground? We have um, weekend workshops and some some. Uh, four or five day workshops. We also do a two, two year long study group where people can come and learn uh, how to use uh, you know, the work that we do in their, in their work life or in their personal relationships. Um, so that's the kind of programming we have right now. Mm -hmm. 
what what could someone expect if they if they really had no experience like at Esalen or with Gestalt if they was like oh I live in Santa Cruz I want to come and do a weekend like what goes on um well we go over the basic concepts of Gestalt like my little mini definition is I and thou in the here and now and so uh, and then we we do exercises and practices really that support presence and and how to be more in the here and now you know it's one thing to say gee wouldn't the world be better if we were all present or you know be present that's the answer uh but what i appreciate about what we're doing is that we use a lot of tools to arrive in the present moment to be able to be embodied and track what's happening and and then being able to dialogue with other people about that yeah yeah, I think that makes sense. <laughs> okay. It's, you know, Gestalt is hard to describe and talk about because it's so experiential. And yet, there, I, I need to be able to... Yeah, it's, it's a challenge, that. isn't it? Yeah, yeah. it is. Yeah. But it's, it's very worthwhile because people, their lives changed by this, this practice. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I've gone to therapy. I think the first guy that I went to was a psychoanalyst and psychiatrist. And went to him for a year, and then I maybe five years later I went to a CBT, a cognitive behavioral therapist, uh-huh. and here I've been able to do Gestalt work, and they're all kind of different, but I'm going into it for the exact same reason every time. So that's why it's that's why I'm curious about what an offering under the rubric of Gestalt how is it different, and uh-huh. and and why some people would really take to it. Like, why do you think some people want to work in groups? Because if one awareness is good and two awarenesses is, is better, then you know a room full of awareness and people being present is, is even better because we're working with consciousness and something can happen when we're all present that cannot happen when we're not. Um, and there's a support in being part of a community of doing this, doing this together. Uh, there's a lot of learning that happens in group. You know, we are all unique individuals, and yet we work on some very similar issues. And so when, when I'm watching your session, you know, I, I can work right alongside you and, and be learning so much about myself. Yeah. So, yeah. What is a place on property that you, to you is sacred at Esalen? Gosh, so many. There's a grinding stone on the left-hand side of the Murphy house with, you know, the stone with this indentation in it that was used for grinding. And that's really, I always go by and, and visit that when I'm here. There's a rock on the, on the lawn between the, the Murphy house and the Price house that to me is, you know, a really special spot. The canyon, standing on the bridge and looking up toward the canyon and then turning the other way and looking out to the ocean, that's that's a really powerful spot for me, yeah. What would you say is your secret superpower? What, what's something that you're really good at that not many people know about? That not many people know about? I don't know. Oh, that my relationship to color is really strong (laughs) and that certain colors make me feel really really good and other colors make me feel really really bad what's on the good list uh deep turquoise saffron and gold orange 
uh, you know, green, a certain kind of green that has lots of yellow in it. Yeah. If you weren't living in Aptos, where would you be living? Um, two places come to mind. Portland, Oregon. Lots of people who used to live here have moved up to Portland, and I really like it as a city. There's a lot going on. There's a lot of art and music and, and great places to eat, and there's community up there. So, um, yeah, I, I like Portland a lot. Spain is something else that comes to mind. I really love Spain. I've been many times, and often when I've been there, I, I can imagine myself living there for a while. Yeah. Uh, this is a Tim Ferriss-inspired question. He sometimes asks people, if you had a billboard, what would you, the opportunity to have a billboard, what message would you put on the billboard? Trust yourself. I almost feel like another question about Esalen might be nice, like, um, okay. yeah, like, okay, so if you're thinking about the, the gift that it's given you, the, the years, you came in, in 82, and now it's 2017, my math isn't great, but that's, is that 35 years? Yes. What about it is, is, where is the magic, what, it, what is it, what did you get? Well, I, I come from a ranching background, and I um, always loved nature and being in, in more remote places. That was always so nourishing for me. And yet, in that culture, um, there was a certain amount of loneliness, or let's say a patriarchal slant to that way of living. So to come here and to be in the spectacular beauty of Big Sur and to live so remotely and to be part of an international community where there was so much going on was an amazing experience that I could never have dreamt up. So one of the things Esalen has given me is that is to have trust or faith in, in their things ahead and things that exist that I don't even have an idea for and to stay open to that kind of possibility. Thank you, Dorothy, for doing the interview. You're so welcome. I really enjoyed being here with you and, and answering your questions and thinking about these things and talking to you about them. Thank you. Today's show was produced in conjunction with Cheryl Franzel, Geraldine Hess, Lori Putnam, Shannon Hudson, and Ian Golden. Our music is by Nico Holloman. To listen to more episodes, find us on iTunes or at esalen.org. That's E-S-A-L-E-N.org. Until next time, be well. <laughs>